for those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirksen. I'm the main teaching pastor. And we're going to go back to our seri- my series on Revelation. The last couple of weeks I haven't been preaching. I was uh, teaching in uh, school ministers, a bunch of stuff and some other things I was busy with. And so we had uh, Ray Yoder and Stefan up here, which was awesome. And uh, some amazing truths there we learned uh, from God during their messages the last couple of weeks. But today we'll go back to the series seven, which uh, is the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, which is the letters to the seven churches, which is why we just call it seven. And uh, this will be part three. And today, I know some people have been bugging me, and they say, well, you only get through a verse at a time and a message. It's going to take you forever. But today, I'm basically going to finish chapter one, okay? So we're going to go through nine verses. You'll be here till about supper time, but uh, we'll get through it. Just kidding, all right? So let's pray, and then uh, we're going to take it up, verses nine through 18 today. And I just, you know what? I just, this is all about Jesus. Everything, it's, it has to be all about him. Our prayer summit is about him, seeking him. Our Christmas offering is about giving more so he can do more. And this message today and all of our messages in worship, it's about putting our focus on him because he is worthy. And so uh, let's pray and let's start this off by just asking him to be present and to minister to us. Jesus, it really is all about you. And it's so awesome that once a week, and, and obviously we do more, Lord Jesus. We connect with you on our own and we connect you with you in our cell groups in various places and in our devotions. But once a week in the corporate body, we gather together and we celebrate and your spirit is here in a special way. And we do that because we need to. Hebrews 10 says that we should not neglect the, the gathering together and meeting together to encourage each other, especially as the day of your return draws near. And so I just pray today, Jesus, I want to put all the attention on you again this morning. I want us to leave from here. Jesus, I want us to leave from here more in awe of you and more in love with you than we were when we came in. And I pray that you would help me to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. Verses 9 through 18, let's uh, begin here. Verse 9, we've read a couple times already, but we'll just start there. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And before we get to kind of the main body of what I want to talk about today, I just want to stop here for just a moment because I I regularly get questions as people read here in Revelation, also in, in Ephesians and stuff, but people ask me the question, what does it mean he was in the Spirit? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? What does it mean to be in the Spirit? And the other question I often get is people asking, what is the Lord's day? Okay, and so just a little bit of background before we get into the main body here. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. What was the Lord's Day? Well, the thing, yeah, a little bit of history, a little bit of background. Uh, The Jewish people, even to this day, believing Jews, but certainly in John's day, the Jewish people have always uh, worshipped God and set aside as a special day uh, the Sabbath, which is Saturday, okay? Sometimes nowadays people call Sunday the Sabbath, but technically actually in the Bible, the Sabbath is uh, Saturday. And the Sabbath was the day they would go to the temple and, and, uh, and, and what was the day they set aside to do no work? The Sabbath is Saturday, all right? Now what happened is Jesus then came to earth and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and the resurrection was such a history-changing, life-changing, incredible event. And the, and the early Christians were so excited about it, and we should be that excited still today, but they were so excited about it, he re- but, but he rose from the grave on a Sunday, okay? He rose from the grave on a Sunday, and so in memory of that history-changing event that radically changed their lives, they began to, on Sundays, remember Jesus' resurrection and, and praise him and worship him for what he had done, and so, the, and, but they continued to also celebrate the Sabbath. Like, the early Jewish Christians did both, Okay, and so on Saturday, they would still do their Sabbath stuff, but then on Sunday, they had this second day where they would make it special and they would do various things and and try to gather and worship and and fellowship and all that sort of stuff, and they started to call that the Lord's Day. They began to call Sunday the Lord's Day to differentiate it from the Sabbath, which, I mean, all of the days are are God's days, right? But they began to call Sunday the Lord's Day um, because because they began to also make that day special as well in memory of the resurrection, which was on Sunday. And of course, uh, over time, um, you know, as the, uh, the, the first church for the first couple of decades was mostly Jewish. It wasn't, I mean, we're not used to that now today. We, when we think of Christianity, we think of it as a non-Jewish religion, right? But in the early days of Christianity, it was predominantly, uh, you know, mostly Jewish. 
And, uh, and so they, they were steeped in the Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath. But over time, the, as the church kind of shifted and became more and more non-Jewish and more and more non-Jews, Gentiles uh, became Christians and eventually it flipped and, and now the vast majority of, of Christians are, are not Jews. But over time, as these Christians are coming in, they don't have a history with Saturday. And over time, they just adopted Sunday and, just, and that's how we are today. You know, most Christians uh, go to church on Sunday and we think of Sunday as the Lord's Day. That's how it started. And that's what John's actually talking about here. He just says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's talking about, it was, you know, Sunday morning. Now, he doesn't tell us it was Sunday morning. That's just kind of how I imagine it. But he was, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He was, it was a Sunday. He wished he could have been fellowshipping with the other believers, with the churches. But he's uh, been exiled to Patmos. He's all on his own. He's 90 years old. Well, if you can't have fellowship with the believers, you can still have fellowship on your own with the Holy Spirit. And so he said, I was in the Spirit on Sunday morning. What better thing to do on a Sunday morning, all right? So then the next question is, well, what does it mean he was in the Spirit, right? And, and again, this is a common question. What does it mean he was in the Spirit? And there's two extremes. Uh, there's two extremes of how Christians interpret this. One extreme of what it means to be in the Spirit is some uh, Christians, on, on more to the one extreme of the charismatic uh, side of things, they understand in the Spirit to mean that you are filled with the Spirit in such a way that there is some kind of uh, manifestation or supernatural experience happening, Okay. And, uh, and, and I've been in places where this is really taken to extreme, and it isn't in all charismatic churches. This is not me against charismatic churches at all. We're, we believe in the, in the gifts of the Spirit. So we are in, you know, could be called charismatic by some. But in some extremes, I've been in places where, you know, being in the Spirit, I've been in meetings, literally, not making this up, where people were, uh, you know, clucking like chickens, literally running around, uh, laughing uncontrollably, falling over, all kinds of stuff. And, 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 uh, and that was called being in the Spirit. And for them, being in the Spirit is you're so full of the Holy Spirit that you kind of lose control of yourself and there's some kind of manifestation or experience happening. And, and, uh, and so that's one extreme of how being in the Spirit. And so people read that John was in the Spirit and some people take that to mean, you know, he was having some crazy experience in the Spirit, okay? That's one extreme of how people look at it. There's another extreme though, and I think this one actually applies to far more Christians. And I think a lot of Christians take it to mean this, and that is they basically take it to mean nothing. So on the one hand, you know, there's one extreme. Some people take in the Spirit to mean supernatural experience, crazy manifestations, uh, things that are out of your control happening. The other extreme is lots of Christians uh, today, they say, they, they look at being in the Spirit this way, that it essentially means nothing. And what they say is this, everybody who's a Christian automatically is in the Spirit. From the moment you're a Christian, you ask Jesus in your heart, you get the Holy Spirit. So that means every day that you're a Christian, from the moment you become a Christian, you're always automatically at all times in the Spirit. And so essentially what it then means is nothing because if we're all always in the Spirit at all times automatically from the moment we become a Christian, it actually, when John says he was in the Spirit, it doesn't mean anything because we're always at all times automatically in the Spirit. And to them, to the people that have that you know, idea that I'm just always in the Spirit automatically because I have the Holy Spirit ever since I asked Jesus in my heart. For those people, I just ask the question, if that's what he's talking about here, why does he mention it at all? Like if you're, if, if you're just automatically in the Spirit at all times from the moment you're a Christian, why would John mention, you know, last Sunday morning I was in the Spirit? I mean, that's like one fish saying to another fish, last Sunday I was in the water. And a fish says... I mean, your what hurts? What are you talking about? You were in the water last Sunday. Aren't you always in the water? Well, yeah. yeah. Do you ever get out of the water? Well, no. Why would you say you were in the water last Sunday? I mean, that's, that's absurd, okay? I don't get up here and preach a message and say, you know, last Sunday, guys, I breathed air. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you mean you breathed air? Well, I, I breathed air. Don't you always breathe air? Well, yeah, usually I'm kind of, kind of attached to it. Ever since I was born, I've just, I breathe air. I don't like to stop. I'm addicted to it, right? Oh, I don't talk about it. I mean, I don't say last Sunday morning I was breathing air because I always breathe air. I, a fish doesn't talk about last Sunday being in the water. When John says I was in the Spirit, he has to mean something. I mean, there's times when you're in the Spirit 
and there's times when you're not in the Spirit. And John specifies, and he doesn't say a lot about it because he assumes these Christians know what they're, you know, the people he's writing to know what he's talking about. He, I, he assumes it's just a regular part of life that he does, they would do. But it's not something that's just automatically happening all the time. It's something he does, and specifically, he likes to do it on Sundays. And so I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, what does it mean he was in the Spirit? Well, we get a little more information. Paul, in Ephesians 6, verse 18, tells us to do this. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So Paul tells us we're supposed to. He says, make sure you do this. Pray in the Spirit. Whenever you pray, pray in the Spirit. Well, again, Paul wouldn't tell us to pray in the Spirit if this is just something we all do automatically, like by, just by definition of being a Christian, you are automatically praying in the Spirit whenever you pray. No, Paul tells us to do it, which means that a lot of times we, you know, people are not praying in the Spirit. They're just praying. So you say, well, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, I think sometimes it's easy to tell what something is when you just look at obvious examples of what it isn't. And again, Paul doesn't give us lots of information because, again, he just assumes this is just, it's, it's, it's obvious, and the fact of the matter is true that all of us here, you know, if you've ever tried to pray before even once, we all know of experiences of what it's like to pray not in the Spirit. Is that not true? We all know what it's like to have prayer times where you're just, your mind is distracted the entire time. You're trying to pray, but your mind is everywhere else. And you try to do that for a while, and then finally you just give up. We all know what it's like to pray and just be completely distracted and not get anywhere. We all know what it's like to pray, and actually on the inside, whether consciously or not, but we have a hard heart towards God, and we're not wanting to obey something he's telling us to do, but we pray anyway, and the whole time we're praying, we just can feel that our prayers are getting nowhere. We all know what it's like to pray when you bring a worry to God, and you bring this worry to God, and in your prayer time, you don't end up with a new perspective or anything like that. You just spend the whole time doing more worrying, and you leave your prayer time more worried than you came into it. I've been there. You've been there. We've all been there. That's not praying in the Spirit. Okay? When you pray, and you can't concentrate, and you think about everything else in your life, that's not praying in the Spirit. When you pray and you're hardened against God and you're not willing to listen and you're just, you know you're just hitting a dead end and you're not going anywhere, when you pray and you're just worried and you're not coming out of the worry when you pray, these are all examples of praying not in the Spirit. And Paul tells us we're supposed to pray in the Spirit. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, I could show you, we could do a little word study of all times when Paul talks about being in Christ and in all sorts of stuff. But basically, and I don't have time to do that right now because I want to get to the main body of this uh, in, in the rest of Revelation chapter 1. But a really important thing you have to understand is when Paul talks about being in Christ and when he talks about being in the Spirit, another word we could actually use in English just as well is what Paul is telling us to do is pray with the Spirit. Okay? What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be with Christ. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit or be in the Spirit? It means to pray with the Spirit or to be with the Spirit. You say, well, what does it mean to pray with the Spirit? Let me explain. This is a totally different way. Most, you know, if you've come to Southern for any, any amount of time, we talk about this a lot. This won't be new to you. But it is such an important, vital truth for your prayer life. See, a lot of times, Christians, we take prayer to be me just telling God what he needs to do. So I'm worried. I've got problems in my life. I go to God and tell him what he needs to do, as if I have the right perspective about the situation, as if I have the right heart in the situation, and as if I know he made the universe, but m m me and my finite little mind know exactly how he needs to answer. And so we go to prayer, and prayer is me just telling God a bunch of things. Okay, that's one way to view prayer, and that's the way a lot of people view prayer, and that's why a lot of people struggle with their prayer lives, and they can't go anywhere, and prayer is just dead and boring to them. But there's another way to view prayer, and that is, when I go to prayer, I'm not going to, to prayer to tell God everything he needs to do, and assuming that I have the right heart, and assuming that I have the right perspective about the things that are happening. There's another way to view prayer, and that is, when I go to prayer, I actually view it as, uh, I have a problem, I have worries, I have needs, I have fears, I have stuff that, that it's, and God wants to carry those burdens. And so I take those now to God, but I'm not just telling him a bunch of stuff, I'm going now to God, and prayer is a partnership, and I want to get his perspective, I want to get his heart, I want to know his heart for this situation and the people in this situation and myself. I want to know his perspective. And then I also want to know his will. What does he want me to do? How does he want to answer? 
And so when I go to prayer, I'm not just yelling a bunch of things to God one way. When I go to prayer, I'm, cu- I'm pushing in, and sometimes it might take you know, one prayer time. It might take days or weeks or whatever. But over time, as I pray about a particular situation, I begin to discern what is God's heart. I begin to discern what is God wanting to do. I begin to discern how God wants me to pray. And now I begin to pray with his heart, with his perspective. I begin to pray his prayer prayers and suddenly my prayer life takes off. My prayer life just gets Holy Spirit power. And I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily crazy experiences, even though those sometimes come as well. And I'm not against experiences at all. And sometimes they do come. But, but, what ha- but I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is you, can, you know it in your spirit. This prayer, I am praying a God prayer right now. And you pray with faith. That's praying with the spirit. You're praying with his heart, with his perspective. You're praying his desire. And you're praying with him. It's a powerful form of prayer. And Paul says that's the only way we should pray. We should only pray to pray with the spirit, to pray in the spirit, not just to be telling God a whole bunch of things, if that makes any sign. So, uh, any sense, sorry. And so if we go back to Revelation, John says on the Lord's Day, you know, last Sunday morning, guys, I was in the Spirit. What's he talking about? To be in the Spirit is simply this. It is simply to come to a place where my heart is quieted before God, and now he can speak to me. I'm in a place where my heart is quiet. I've gotten past the worries and anxiety and busyness of life because the fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, when we're in the middle of a day often, it's hard for God to get through to us. Isn't that true? I mean, we need to grow in being sensitive to him all day long. But the fact of the matter is, when we're in the midst of busyness and anxiety and all kinds of stuff going on, there's often times when we're not sensitive to his spirit's leading. And so to be in the spirit is to intentionally go to a place where I get my heart quiet before God, quiet enough now that my heart begins to connect with the Holy Spirit, and now he can begin to speak to me. That that place of being connected to God, that place of being quieted before God, sometimes... It'll come with an experience or a manifestation, and those times are precious. But it's not, the, it's not the experience that means you're in the Spirit. It's the being connected. It's the being with Him so that He can speak to you and touch you and change you. That's what it means to be in the Spirit. And so, you know, for me, that, that can look, there's an infinite number of ways. God is so creative, and the people that He has made here, we're all so different. None of us it never looks the same for any one person. There's no rules. But I'll tell you how being in the Spirit looks, can look commonly for a lot of people and often looks for me. Being in the Spirit often looks like for me is early in the morning, the journal's open, the Bible's open. And there I am. There I was again this morning with Jesus. And just because my Bible's open and my journal's open doesn't mean I'm in the Spirit. And sometimes I fail to get there. Some days it's just like that in human life. And you spend your devotional time worried and distracted and you don't get there. And there's grace for that and there's mercy on us. But there's a lot of times where I do get to that place where my heart is quieted and now God can speak to me. And the journal's open and the Bible's open and I'm worshiping Him and I'm in that place of quietness. That's being in the Spirit. Okay? John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. It was a Sunday morning. What better day to be in the Spirit? And he doesn't go into a whole big description because he just figures, this is normal for me. It should be normal for you. You know what I'm talking about. He's worked with these churches for many years. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And while he's in the Spirit, you know, so that's the moment he's having. While he's in the Spirit, he then actually does have, because the fact of the matter is, you know, most of the time when you are in the Spirit, you're not going to have some kind of crazy manifestation or, or experience. But the fact of the matter is sometimes if you go into that place of quietness and connection with God enough times, there will be times when He touches you in precious and unique and special ways. And so that is what happens to John this time in Revelation 1. He's in the Spirit like he normally is, on a, you know, in the morning or whenever on a Sunday. And this time Jesus shows up in a powerful way. And so we read that in the next verse there. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying. And so loud voice there like a trumpet. Don't think of, you know, Jesus talking like, like this, like, like a trumpet sounds. Not, not weird. He's talking more here about volume and size, okay? Uh, you're going to see in just a few verses as we look more into this description of who Jesus is that his voice also rumbles like the roar of many waters. That's because this is Jesus in his glory and he's going to talk to John now, Okay? So John is just in the spirit. He's not expecting anything. There's no formula for this. 
There's no formula. He's, he's 90 years old. He's walked with Jesus most of his life. By the way, a little bit of interesting background information, and maybe in, in a message someday I'll develop this a bit more. There's a good chance that John was actually related to Jesus, like they were cousins or something. So he probably grew up with Jesus as well, not just during the three years. But anyway, he's 90 years old. He knew Jesus from when he was young. He's walked with Jesus for all these years, but he has never, ever experienced Jesus the way Jesus is about to show up. And he didn't expect it. He's just in the spirit. I'm just spending time with God. I'm connected with God. I need to hear him because I need to connect with him day after day because I just need him and I love him. He doesn't expect it and Jesus just shows up. And the next thing he knows, there's a voice like a trumpet talking to him from behind him. And you know, I just want to talk about that for just a moment because there's something you have to understand about Jesus. This is actually one of the things I love about Jesus is you can't control him or manipulate him. Sometimes, I mean... Most of the time here on this earth, and you'll see why later in this message, he meets with us in the still, small voice of our hearts. And there's reasons for why he does that. But sometimes he just wants to give us those little precious touches of heaven where we get to experience more of him. But you can't make those moments happen. Sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. Oftentimes, most of the time they don't. But every once in a while, he just shows up. Well, why did he show up that time? It's just because he wanted to. You can't control him. You can't bottle him up. And this is, this is actually going to take a load off of some of your shoulders. I just, right here, I just want to stop here for just a moment. And I want you to put yourself in John's shoes. He's just in the spirit. He's just spending time with God on a Sunday. No idea. He's done this hundreds of Sundays before this. And other days as well. Okay? He has no idea Jesus is about to show up. This isn't a formula. This isn't something that happens because John prayed this prayer. John happened to pray the right words and poof. Jesus shows up and speaks like a trumpet. No. This happens purely because Jesus just decides he's the sovereign king of the universe. And he just decided that day in his plan for his reasons, and one of the reasons is because he wanted a book of the Bible written, is he says, I'm going to show up today for John. But the problem is that many of us as Christians, we want to bottle Jesus up and we want to make these experiences because we're focused on the experience rather than on Jesus. And so we want to bottle Jesus up. If we ever had an experience, even once with Jesus, we keep trying to access that experience again and again and again. And we wonder why it doesn't work. Isn't that true? I mean, how many of us, you know, you ha- we're in your devotions one day, and let's say you were reading Micah 4. You're reading Micah 4, you have your devotions every day. And one day you're reading Micah 4, and for whatever reason, you're praying, you're listening to worship music, and all of a sudden that day, that's the day you're in the Spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit shows up powerfully in your devotion time. Any of you who've walked with God for any amount of time, you know what this is like. He just shows up, or you're in a worship time or whatever, but you're in your devotions, and suddenly you're reading this one passage, and the thing comes alive. Next thing you know, it's one of those precious moments with Jesus. And, and next thing you know, you're weeping. His spirit is there. You're, you're crying. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. He, it's a time of healing. It's a time of you just have so much faith that he's real. He's touching you at a deep level. These are precious moments. And you go, oh, I love that. And you think... Somewhere in your subconscious, you think, that happened because I had my devotions today. Like, I'm a really spiritual person, and if everybody would pray as much as me, they would have that too. And you know what you do the next day, right? We've all done this. You turn back to Micah 4, because that's what you did yesterday. You go to the same place, you put on the same worship music, you do everything the same, and then it's dead. What happened? Yesterday, I was weeping over this passage. Two days ago, I was weeping over this verse. And God was just ministering. He was powerful. Today I read it, it's like nothing. It's like, hmm, what happened there? The power isn't in a formula. He just showed up that day. And you can't bottle him up. He rarely shows up the same way twice. And you can't control him. You can't manipulate him. You know, you prayed for someone once, that one time at a retreat or at camp or wherever, and someone, you know, and then someone, there was like a hot sensation on their shoulder, and everybody got the tingles, and people were getting words, and somebody got healed. Number of you have had that experience. You prayed over someone, a prayer, someone, or wherever, and someone got healed. And you're just like, wow, I'm amazing. Like, I pray for people, people get healed. And then after that, you're always praying for people the same way. Like, I just got to get that same feeling back that I had the last time, and I got to just pray for this person, and it doesn't happen. Why? Because Jesus just shows up where he doesn't. The power is not in a formula. The power is him, and you can't control him, and you can't bottle him up. Now, that's not to say when I say he shows up or he doesn't that 
you know, 99% of the time he's just absent. No, no, 99% of the time he's speaking to us in the stillness and we're discerning and we're seeking and we're following. And then there's these precious moments, but you can't bottle them up. And I know of people, they carry this weight of burden around on them because, you know, way back in their past, they had this season in their life where they were getting, you know, dreams and visions and miracles and it was so powerful and it was so wonderful. And now it's years later and they're not getting them anymore and they feel like they're backslidden. But the thing you have to realize is spiritual maturity, I'm going to put this up on on the screen right now, spiritual maturity is not measured by your experiences or by miracles. It's measured by love, the love and humility and obedience in your life. That's spiritual maturity. You have no control over experiences. You have no control over miracles. And I know of lots of churches today, they're focused. They feel this pressure and their leaders feel this pressure. Every time they have a a prayer service, somebody has to get healed. Every time they have a prayer service, people have to have a certain kind of experience. Every time they have a, a crusade or whatever, there has to be this certain thing happen. And the focus is on this thing has to happen rather than just the focus is Jesus. The focus is I need to obey him. I need to humble myself. I need to love him. And then sometimes he shows up and does that stuff and we treasure those moments and sometimes he just doesn't. But always in, in I find this in books and this will help you to discern as you're reading books and as you're, you know, some of, you know, there's all these other teachers out there and we live in these days of so many books and you can listen to other teachers and read books and authors and sort of stuff. Let me help you discern because sometimes people come to me and they want copied Like, this person did this, and they said always this. Well, praise God, he gave them an anointing and a gift, and it happened there. But our job isn't to try to replicate something that's out of our power. It's Jesus that does the miracle. It's Jesus that gives the experience. Sometimes he gives it, sometimes he doesn't. When he doesn't, we just enjoy following him, obeying him, loving him, humbling ourselves before him, and discerning what he's saying in the quietness of our hearts. Spiritual maturity is not measured by how amazing the spiritual experiences or miracles are that you've had in your life, but by the amount of love and humility and obedience that is in your life. That's what's important. That's what matters to God. And that's all that's in your control in terms of your choices and stuff. So anyway, oh, by the way, I should just say this. I forgot a little story. Just, you know, sometimes, let me just say this. Um, sometimes, well, I have notes, I guess, right? Otherwise, I just forget everything. Um, sometimes God gives, not always, not always, don't, don't view this as me saying something that this is always, but sometimes God gives people powerful experiences because of a weakness in their life and they need that experience. Like I, I was talking to a guy, a phenomenal story, guy in our church, wonderful man. And he was telling me, this is just this past year, he told me a story of how a few years ago God gave him this vision just in detail, in full color, specific vision. He was awake and I believe he was driving, which is a little bit scary, but, but however God shows up, right? But he, he, he was awake, and then God gave him this vision, this waking vision, this powerful vision. He saw something that did not exist then yet. It had to do with our church, all this sort of stuff. And he saw it in detail and in color. And a few years later, it happened, you know, it happened exactly like his vision. And of course, you get a vision like that, and you feel like, wow, I'm amazing. I have visions. Look at me. Wow, Right? And you feel good. Wow, look at me. You know, I, I weep in the presence of God and I'm so spiritual. And he asked God, like, why, why did I get this vision? Why not somebody else? And God told him, it's because you wouldn't have believed me otherwise. And right then he saw that God had given him that vision, not because of how amazing he was, but because of how weak he was. God said, there's other people I didn't need to give that vision to. They already believed and followed So sometimes, that's the thing about experience. Don't chase experience. Chase Jesus, the one who gives them. Don't chase miracles. Chase Jesus, the one who can give miracles. And yes, as you chase them, there are precious moments of miracles and experiences, and we should treasure those, and they're wonderful when they happen. He gives us that little taste of heaven in advance. But we chase him, not the experience. Anyway, verse 12. So John is just in the spirit. He's got no control over it. It's not a formula. Jesus didn't show up because of how amazing John was. He showed up because he wanted to that morning. And so John's just in the spirit and he's connecting with the Lord and now he hears a voice like a trumpet behind him. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And we'll talk more about the lampstands next week. 
And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man. Now, I have to just stop there for a moment. Son of man, we have these, this terminology. We read the Bible, and we have these phrases, and we kind of make them religious phrases. We kind of encrust them with all kinds of religiosity. And he turned around, and he saw the son of man. What's he talking about there, the son of man? I'll tell you what he's talking about. He saw a human being. That's all it is, Okay. There's more to that there in just a second. But that's when he says, son of man, that's just how they said it. I saw one like a son of man. I saw someone with two legs and hair and eyes and a face. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't an animal. He wasn't a monster, a cow, or anything like that. One like a son of man. A human being. That's all he's seeing. Right now, more than a human being, that's why he says like a son of man. He didn't just turn around and see a guy. And I just turned around and there was a guy talking to me. No, no, no. I saw one like a son of man. I saw he's a human being, that's for sure, but he's much more than a human being, as you're going to see in the description in just a moment. Isn't that amazing, though? Jesus is a human being. He turns around and he sees a son of man, a human being, while one like a son of man, though much more than a human being, because that's what we see now in verse 13, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This isn't baby in a manger, Jesus. This isn't dying on a cross, Jesus. This is Jesus. See, in a church, we need to get a revelation of that because lots of Christians still think of Jesus as baby in a manger, Jesus, and dying on the cross, Jesus. Now, baby in the manger is glorious. That's a glorious part of Jesus' past. He did, at one point in his past, come down out of heaven, and because he loves us, it's a glorious part of who he is. It's wonderful. We should think about it lots, and we should praise him for it. He did come down, and we'll think lots about it and sing about it and worship him for it at Christmas as we do every year. He did come down and be a baby, but that was in the, in the scope of eternity to eternity, his eternal existence that has no beginning and no end. The baby in a manger segment was just one little segment. He's not a baby in a manger. That's something he did because he loves us. Same with dying broken man on the cross glorious truth. Oh, and it should break our hearts. It should cause us to fall in love with him that he would put himself through that. But that is not who he is. He is not a bleeding, beaten man on the cross right now. He will never be beaten again. He will never be spit on. He will never, he will never be lose. He'll never be killed. He'll never, none of that. That was something he did one time because he loves us and we should praise him for it. But that is not who he is from eternity to eternity. John is seeing him now in this vision. In, in the, well, vision, he's seeing him there, however that is. He's, he's right there with him. John is seeing Jesus as he is and as he always has been. This is the Jesus who spoke the universe out of nothing. That wasn't baby in the manger Jesus that did that. That wasn't man on the cross. Yes, he, he, I mean, that was always him. But that, this is the Jesus, the glorified Jesus, who has always been from no, you know, with no beginning, no end. This is the one who spoke the universe into being. This is Jesus as he is. And when John turns around and sees Jesus in all his glory, he can't even handle it. I mean, think about that. Again, this is the John that knows him so closely. He actually walked with him while he was on the earth. He has been intimate with Jesus for decades and decades. And yet, he turns around and he sees Jesus as Jesus really is. And that's it. He can't handle it. Loss of consciousness, coma, hit the ground face first in front of Jesus. His circuits are fried. Okay, and it's not just John. By the way, we're going we're gonna to jump now into Daniel 10. Some of you know, may have noticed this already before. Some of you may not. It might be new. But actually, John isn't the first person to see Jesus as he really is. There was a man who saw Jesus before he was called Jesus in the Old Testament, and his description of Jesus is identical to Revelation 1. It's Daniel in Daniel chapter 10. And I want to show you Daniel's reaction to Jesus as well, okay? This is 600 years before John writes Revelation, okay? 600 years before John... 500 years, you know, and some years before Jesus is born in the manger and gets the name Jesus. He doesn't even have the name Jesus yet, but I mean, he's always existed. Daniel had an encounter with Jesus. And he describes him the exact same way. It's really powerful. Daniel 10, verse 1. 
In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. So remember, John sees him in a robe with a, with a, with a sash of gold, and Daniel sees him with a belt of gold. His, Daniel goes on to say his body was like beryl, which is a very, you know, bright, shiny metal. His face like the appearance of lightning. John, you know, he describes it as like lightning. I mean, freeze lightning, right? It's so bright. Freeze that, and then that's, Jesus' face is like lightning, okay? John describes it as the sun shining in full strength, okay? His eyes like uh, flaming torches, exactly what John says in Revelation 1. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, exactly what John says in Revelation 1 about Jesus' feet. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude, okay? And which Daniel describes as the roar of many waters. So they're seeing the same person. Now look what happens to Daniel, just like with John. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. These are grown men, okay? They didn't even wait around to see Jesus. They leave Daniel all by himself. But, you know, the presence of Jesus just starts to come close, and they are gone, hiding in the bushes somewhere. I, I, I don't know where they run, but they run off, okay? And, uh, and they leave Daniel alone. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. In other words, he got deathly pale. Okay? Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. He didn't, he didn't have the word in Hebrew called fainting, okay, or passing out. So I, I went into a deep sleep, face first on the ground. He loses conscience. Exact same thing with, with John is he turns around. When he sees Jesus as he really is, he, his circuits are blown He's down. That's Jesus as he is. Okay? Now some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, boy, I don't know how much I'm looking forward to heaven right now. How are we ever going to worship Jesus? Every time he walks in the room, we flop over half dead. <laughs> it's like, hey, we're going to praise Jesus. They open the door, poof, everybody's on the ground. Well, the thing you have to realize, it's like this. It's like you take a little 40-watt bulb you know, out of your, out of your you know, living room lamp or whatever, you plug that in. You know at football stadiums, they've got these huge lights so nighttime, they can light up that field like it's daytime. And, and I looked it up on the internet, you know, this, this week. In some of the stadiums, those are like 2,000-watt bulbs. Okay, now you take one of those little 40-watt bulbs in your lamp and you plug that into the, one of those stadium 2,000-watt things and that thing blows to smithereens. It can't handle it, okay? You want to get light out of that, you know, 2,000-watt Socket, you've got, to get an, you've got to get an upgrade for your bulb. You have to get a much bigger bulb, okay? A much better bulb, a much stronger bulb. Well, the thing you have to understand is the problem with Daniel and John is that there is, there is our sin-weakened bodies. There's our sin-weakened bodies cannot handle the glory of Jesus. That's how awesome Jesus is. To be in his presence, literally, it's like plugging that 40-watt bulb in. Can't handle it. You just physically, emotionally, everything, it's, you're done. You can't handle it. We need an upgrade, and that's one of the reasons we're getting resurrected bodies. Your body was not intended by God to be as weak and sickly as it is right now. And you say, well, I feel totally healthy. Well, no matter how, you could be at 100% health in this sin-stained body. It is nothing compared to what your resurrected body is going to be like. And in, your re in our resurrected bodies, we are going to have a vastly increased capacity to enjoy the glory and the presence of God. And that's awesome. But in the meantime, we have to massively upgrade our internal picture of who Jesus is. We have to get a massive upgrade of our picture of how awesome and glorious Jesus is. And I'll, because I'll tell you right now, most of us, our picture of Jesus is far too small. And there's a lot. You say, how do you know my picture of Jesus is too small? Well, there's two reasons to know. First of all, our worship of, uh, of him is pathetic. And I'm not just talking about the singing part, but it includes that part too. But you can tell that our picture of Jesus is too small by the way we worship him, not just with our song, but with our lives. If you saw Daniel and John, they turn around, they see Jesus, instantly poof, hit the ground. He's that awesome. If you had even an inkling of how awesome and terrifying and majestic he is, you would have no problem. You want my whole business, Jesus? Here it is. How can I use it to serve you? I want to give you my whole life. If you had even an inkling of how amazing he is, you would have no problems giving him your entire life, 
your finances, your time, your family, if you had even an inkling, if I had even an inkling, it's no problem. The moment you see how awesome and majestic and powerful he is, it is no problem to give him absolutely everything. And when you worship, you don't go through the motions. If you get even an inkling of how awesome he is, it's not, you know, to Jesus like this. There is just, there's a worship that comes out of having a proper perspective of who Jesus is. And it's not just of the song I'm talking about and the music kind, but of your entire life and what we give him. We need a massive upgrade of our internal picture of who he is. He is not just some boring accountant, fairy in the, in the sky, looking at the rule book guy who just bores you to tears in your devotions and so you don't even really want to think about him because he's so boring and distant and all that sort of stuff. That is not who he is. If we go back to John, he says... His face, John looks at him, and, and be, just, you know, before he hits the ground, he can just say his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Think about that for a moment. The sun is one of the most powerful forces in nature we know. I mean, it's, it's 93 million miles from here to the sun, okay? 93 million miles, and you look at the sun in the middle of the day, it burns your eyes out. Okay, on a hot summer day, 93 million miles away. Think about it, 93 million miles away, and on a hot day, it scorches us. You can fit one million planet Earths inside the sun. Temperatures hover, you know, on, just inside the, the surface there, hover around 15 million degrees Celsius. That's the sun. And John says the sun, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And of course it was because he's the one who made it. He's the light of the world. The, the sun is just a passing shadow in his presence. John is physically, think about this, he is physically in, in the room with, he can reach out and touch the one who can blow the sun out like a candle. Because you know how many sons Jesus made with just, and he holds them together with thoughts in his head and he spoke them into being with words out of his mouth. The sun, which is so powerful and huge and awesome and dominates our solar system, is only one of like quadrillions of stars that are out there in trillions upon trillions of galaxies, each of them filled with billions and trillions of stars like our sun. And John is in the presence of that one. He's not some boring accountant looking at the rules, looking down at you, guy. And, and, and he's not some fairy in the sky. This is him who actually made that. John is in the presence of the one who can reach out with his right hand and snuff the sun out. And so the question is for you and I, are you blown away by Jesus? Am I blown away by Jesus? Because I'll tell you something, to the extent that you are not blown away, and I mean blown away, well, I'm not using exaggerated words here. John and Daniel turn around, oh, that's awesome, okay? To the extent that you and I are not blown away by Jesus is to the extent that our picture of him is far too small. All of us, our picture of him is too small, but to the extent that we are not blown away by him in worship and in terms of what we give him in our lives. This includes myself. I'm not preaching from a place of, I have the total picture. No, not even close. We all need to grow and grow and grow and grow in it. But to the extent that we are not blown away from him and happily giving him our entire lives and worshiping him with everything that is in us, to the extent that we do not do that because we are not blown away with him is the extent to which our picture of him is too small. And if you could actually see how he really is, it would radically change you. But we have... A picture of him that is too small, and I can tell why. That's, that's why many of us, at the first sign of a crisis, we're filled with worry, and we're filled with stress, and we're filled with fear. What is worry? I'll tell you what worry is. Worry is what happens when I encounter a problem that is too big for me. It's out of my control. If you could control it, if it was small enough that you could do something about it, you wouldn't worry. That's what worry is. Worry is what happens when I encounter a crisis or a problem or a person or whatever that is too big for me to control. It's out of my control, and now I'm worried about how things are going to turn out because I can't make them turn out the way I want them to. That's worry. Here's the thing. Jesus cannot be worried. He has never worried even a moment in his entire eternal existence. How could you worry about anything when you're the one who spoke the whole universe into being? How could you worry about anything that happens in that universe if you hold it all in your hand? You can't worry. 
And the thing is, if you go into the presence of Jesus and you encounter him as he really is, you can't worry there either. It's impossible to fear anything. When you get a proper picture of who Jesus is, it's impossible to fear anyone or anything except for him. You think, you think John and Daniel, when they went into the presence of God, when they turned around and saw Jesus, it was like, do you think they were worried about their finances in that moment? Like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to pay my bills. You think they turned around and saw Jesus and, and were worried about the government? You think John was worried about the Roman soldiers who were guarding him? I wonder if those soldiers are going to kill me. How can you worry about anything? When you're in the presence of Jesus, you only have room for one fear, and that's him. There's only room for one fear when you're in the presence of Jesus, and that's him. That's actually the beauty of the fear of God. When you have the fear of God, you have peace in your heart because you don't fear anything else. It's like when you're worried about that little dog that's yapping at you in your life, and you turn around and you see the lion, you cease to be afraid of the dog, right? There's all, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, he said, don't fear man, fear God. That's the fear that brings peace. There's only room for one fear. When you get a proper fear of Jesus, it's impossible to worry about anything else. Some of you might be sitting there and saying, I don't see how encountering Jesus like that gives me peace. They're unconscious on the ground. Like, you're just scaring me, Chris. I mean, the sun, you know, burning. You got pictures of burning up there on the thing, and that's the, the sun. And, and that this doesn't comfort me about Jesus, Chris. It's actually making me scared of Jesus because when you talk about Jesus like that, I don't think he wants to hug me or comfort me or hold me or love me or that he cares about my small little problems. Somebody better finish the passage. Next verse. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I love that. He laid his right hand. The one whose face shines brighter than the sun, whose power and brightness and might far outstrip the sun, reaches out and like just, he doesn't even just speak words from a distance. It's not like he's cold and distant. He reaches across that gap. John hits the deck because he can't handle it. And that Jesus, who is greater than the sun, reaches out and gently touches him and says, fear not. Now that is the glory of Jesus. On the one hand, terrifying and powerful and majestic and awesome, and at the same time, so you would think with these characteristics, he must be distant and cold, but no, no, no. He is terrifying and awesome and glorious and powerful and majestic and infinite in all of those things, and at the very same time, he is tender and gentle and loves us and wants to hold us and comfort us. And he says, fear not, John. Fear not. Yes, I'm infinite in power. And yes, in majesty and glory and all those sorts of things. But John, you have nothing to fear because you're one of mine. I'm on your side. And when the lion whose face shines brighter than the sun is on your side, then truly you can say, fear not. What can come against you when he's on your side? Fear not. And it's not with, just with, with John. We see the same thing in Daniel's encounter as well. I just love the heart of Jesus that we see here. Daniel 10 verse 10. Daniel's on the ground too, same as, as John, face first. You can't get low enough when you're in the presence of Jesus. Verse 10. And behold, same thing. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And then he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. Not just man loved, he's greatly loved. I greatly love that verse. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. The one, imagine the sun, a million earths, that's how big it is, and 15 million degrees Celsius. Imagine it speaking and saying, You are greatly loved. That's the power of Jesus. And he speaks today and says, You are greatly loved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. When he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Fear not, man greatly loved. Those were Jesus' words. The ancients of days, those are the words he spoke in his awesomeness and his glory before he was born in the manger. He's the same Jesus today. He, he did that little phase in the, in the middle there because he loves us so much. But this is who he is today. And he says to Daniel, 
more than 2,500 years ago, fear not, man greatly loved. And you know what that ancient, the ancient of days, he doesn't change. It's the same heart and the same thing he's saying to us today. Fear not, son, for you are greatly loved. You're not just loved, you are greatly loved. Fear not, daughter, because you're not just loved, you are greatly loved. Can you hear him saying that to you this morning? Can you hear your maker today by his spirit? Can you hear him saying it to you right now? The one who holds the universe in his hands, whose face shines brighter than the sun, whose eyes are blazing torches. Can you hear him saying to you today, out of that heart of infinite power and might and glory, he says to you today, fear not son and daughter, for you are greatly loved. His heart is full of tender, loving mercy. The truth is that many of us cannot hear him saying it. And I can tell because of the, again, I can tell by the lack of worship, I can tell by the, the amount of worry and anxiety in our hearts. And that's the thing about Jesus. It's not enough. It doesn't do anything for you to just hear about him. You actually have to encounter him for yourself. And so I want to leave you with a, with a challenge this week. I want to leave you the challenge because I've just talked to you a bunch about Jesus and in a moment we're going to sing and we're going to worship him because he is worth it. But I want to give you a challenge this week because it's not enough, again, just to hear me speak about him. I want to give you an opportunity this week to actually encounter Jesus and let him blow away your worries. And so there's three things I would challenge you to do this week. First of all, prayerfully meditate on the descriptions of Jesus you find in Revelation 1 and and Daniel 10. Just, just take them and just prayerfully meditate on them a couple times this week. And, just, and while you're doing it, just ask Jesus, tell Jesus, Jesus, would you increase my revelation of who you are? I need to have a bigger picture of you because I'm worried. If you're worried about small things, anything in your life is small compared to how big he is. Jesus, would you increase my revelation of who you are? When you get a vision of who he is, just like with Daniel and John, they, you can't worry about stuff in your life when you have a revelation of who he really is. Number two, and this, is, this, this one, if you do this, I really believe the Holy Spirit is going to grow you. Talk about spiritual maturity. You're going to leap in spiritual maturity. Write down, I, I would challenge you this week to write down a list of the top two or three things in your life that are worrying you. And then I want you to visualize in your mind the picture of Jesus that is described for us in Revelation 1. That's why the Holy Spirit wrote the words down for us. We can picture him like that. That's how he is. I want you to visualize who he is as described in Revelation 1. And then I want you to, each of those things that you wrote in your box, the things that that are worrying you and causing you fear in your life, I want you to picture yourself taking those things to him as he is. And see what he begins to do for you in that. Practice doing that every day until your fears and worries are gone. Last thing, at the end of each of your devotional times this week, again, I want you to visualize Jesus as he's described in Revelation 1. And then I want you to hear him say, I want you to look at him and I want you to hear him say, fear not and in your name for you are greatly loved and just receive his love. Let Jesus speak to you and love you. It's in that two sides of that coin, his majesty and glory and awesomeness and his love for us that all of our worries and fears, that's heaven. When you get to know him, that's heaven and all of your worries and fears are gone and now you have worship and purpose in life because he is worth it all. Let's pray And then we're going to spend a few minutes singing to him and worshiping him because he is worthy. Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, it really is all about you. Even more than I know in my heart. I don't have enough revelation of you. I want more. We as a church, Jesus, need more of you. I pray that this week as we push into you, Jesus, that you will will imprint in us, give each of us, take us to a new level, a new grade, a new height in our perspective of how awesome and majestic you are so we can grow in trust, that we can grow in peace, that we can grow in confidence and courage in how much you love us, and that we can grow in our love for you. We dedicate these next few minutes as we sing this song. Jesus, this is all for you. In your name we pray. Amen.